Hi, welcome to Five Days with Doug. I'm Doug Perkins. Today, we're going to talk to a friend of mine named Joel Gordon. Joel is a recording engineer, a great storyteller, a listener, and a really interesting guy that does fun things. So today we sit in his studio up in Boston, and um, he just kind of goes for it. We have a we have a fun chat about uh, what it means to be a producer of records, what it means to take chances and go searching for interesting projects. Um, he talks about teaching kids to listen to the desert. He talks about his trips to far off points in the world recording throat singers and traditional musicians who have never seen a microphone. He, he goes lots of places. He even talks about hanging out with John Cage and doing some really fun projects there. I should say that uh, the reason that Cage comes up so quickly is that, uh, well, Joel's a dog lover and has a dog named Maisie, which is, as he says, the love of his life. And uh, Maisie was in the room for the whole interview and, I just need to warn you up front that uh, Maisie plays a plays a, a, a an important role in the first ten minutes of the podcast. You'll just hear Maisie um, panting and jumping around the room a bit. So uh, just be excited about the fact that you're hanging out with Joel's dog for a little bit in here. Um, but if you're somebody that gets creeped out at the sound of a dog in a podcast, uh, just fast forward a little bit and Maisie will calm down. Joel was recording all day and was away from Maisie. So when we sat down, Maisie was very excited to see us. Um, yeah, so so enjoy Joel. If, if you don't know Joel, um, learn about him through here. He's, he's a great and fascinating man. He's taught me so much about, about music, about life, about uh, how to record records. Yeah. He, he worked on this so record with me and then also this record I'm really proud of um, that Todd and I did with the Me and Perkins duo and some of his students recording all this early percussion music by Joanna Beyer and Henry Cowell and a bunch of pieces that Henry Cowell commissioned back in the 30s and uh, mixed that record with Joel and that was for me a week-long masterclass in how to how to honor good sounds and how to how to make that transfer into a recording. So check that record out if you want. Um, also, uh, this is the height of my travel season. So this week I go off to Greece, doing some Inuksuit, uh in Greece next week in Athens. Uh, and then, then I'm off to Chosen Vale, my percussion seminar that I run for two weeks in New Hampshire. And then um, head out west to a place called Tippet Rise, which is unbelievable to do an Inuksuit there to celebrate the opening of Tippet Rise. And then Todd and I head out to Vail, to Bravo Vail, for some concerts in the first week of August. And then also we'll do some Inuksuit um, in Vail and then also at the Aspen Festival in the first weekend in August. So uh, you should look for those. Come see me. Come say hi if you're listening to this. And as always, um, drop a line and say hi if you're listening and enjoy it. Or drop a line to let me know that I should never let a dog near a microphone ever again. So here is Joel. Please enjoy it.
That's, if you can hear sounds, that's Maisie. This is my dog, Maisie, I should just say something about the little love of my life, who is very, very excited that Doug's here because uh-huh. I've been recording a string quartet all day. and She's been kind of sitting around being bored dog, so she apparently likes dog, Doug quite well. So. That's nice. We I've normally interviewed cat people so far. It's like a long string of cat people. Well, you're you're long overdue then. And then the pivot the pivot was a guy who was allergic to cats. He was like, I've heard I've heard what you do. I'm allergic to cats, so just know that going in. Just and now we've got a dog. There we go. So this is great. So we'll see what that sound. At any rate, we're just gonna ignore the the man behind the door. Um, yeah. So anyhow, I don't know. I thought I would. I thought I would. And also. Um, so I guess on one, one level, I'm interested in talking to you just as a guy who has done many, many great things on the internet, um, creating television. You created Art of the States. Right. And that ran for a long time. Right. Where you were exporting American music all uh-huh. around the world. This is great. This is a mess. Love it. This is, this is um, the sounds you're hearing is probably, this is probably hurting you. This is probably hurting your soul at some level. Mine? Well, yeah, as somebody who looks for clean and pristine sounds. No, I love it. No, listen, okay. I, I worked with John Cage a lot, so I'm very, you know, this is all good. Nice. What did you do with him? <clears throat> I don't think I knew that about you. A lot of things. Um, we. <laughs> so I have, um, I basically got introduced to John Cage way back through Indeterminacy, which was a Smithsonian Folkways LP oh, yeah. back in the day. That was we came out on Smithsonian Folkways. Thank you, Moses Ash. I bought those, the LPs, cassettes. cassettes. I bought the cassettes. I I have the cassettes still. Right. I remember I remember that that time very well. But the because uh, um, a friend of mine was an artist in Philadelphia. I was living in Philadelphia. It was nineteen seventy something, and uh, he said. You got to come over. I got some really good bourbon, and I got this this really great record to listen to. This guy John Cage, who I'd never heard of, and it was um, so we went over there and we listened to it. We had the bourbon. You know, you listen. You have the usual reaction. These stories are very random, and these sounds are very random. And then we got through two sides of it, and we're late because we had to go to see the opening of Doctor Strangelove. Nice, right? So when we were in West Philly, we were walking to the movie theater and realized that, you know, after a while, of course, with indeterminacy, if you listen to it for any length of time, you stop believing that anything's random. It all just, you know, makes sense. It sounds composed. It sounds like things are commenting on each other and all that. And, you know, and then you walk out in the world and you think this can't be random because it sounds composed. It sounds like everything on the world and the street is commenting on each other. And then you go see Doctor Strange. <laughs> so it was a big day in my life. Oh, cool! Actually, and so I knew about him. And then he 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 did the Norton lectures in the nineties right. here at Harvard. And so he was coming up a lot. And we were going to do a radio show with him because nobody was. Um, let me pause that just one second. Anyway, John Cage was coming up and doing the Norton lectures, and it turns out, and I was working at WGBH at the time, and it turns out nobody had thought to record these things. And so I knew 
Steve Drury had worked with John Cage a lot, uh-huh. pianist Steve Drury at NEC. And so I got his number. I called Cage up and I said, so, you know, it would be okay if we recorded these things. And he said, um, yes, as he said, he said, but you have to promise me that um, if you get bored, you'll pack up your gear and leave. <laughs> And I said, well, I said, that's probably not going to happen, but, you know, maybe we could do something interesting with them. And then I said, what if we hung some microphones out the windows of Sanders Theater and recorded them as well? He goes, yes. And then you could put all of them on the left channel and me on the right channel. And the listeners could decide which was more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we did that. And, um, we recorded it, and I was sitting up in this hot booth in Sanders Theater, and he miscalculated his because these were these were basically mesostics, and they were, and they were you know randomized, and it was supposed to be a one-hour lecture, but he miscalculated all that. So between the long introduction by Reinhold Brinkmann, and um, which he seemed completely baffled by Cage. And then his uh, miscalculation, it went on for a couple hours. Right. Sanders Theater was completely full. So and we were recording on tape up in this hot, little, hot, hot booth. We had to keep changing. We were prepared for that. And, and the, usual, the usual thing happened. Started listening to it and the, all these, you know, it was random pieces of, a, he was just one guy at a microphone reading these mesostics made up of Walden, the New York Times, Zen Cohen's, all these things that, you know, his favorite stuff, all random, all, all together. And just reading it, just one guy with a glass of water and Sanders Theater, and these four mics are hanging out the window and two mics are in the back. And he's reading this thing and it was interesting. And then it was like, okay, this isn't interesting anymore. It's like, no, this is boring. No, this is really pissing me off. And then, as usually happens, I sort of fell asleep for a couple minutes. <laughs> and I woke up wondering whether the tape had run out. It, I don't think it was that much later. I woke up and suddenly everything began to make sense. It all sounded like it was just he was reading a narrative, you know. And I could tell from the audience response that everybody else, the ones who stayed, uh-huh. and, the, and the ambience changed quite a lot because most people just left. Right. <laughs> so <clears throat> it got a little hollow sounding. And, and I realized that everybody else was having that same experience. You could hear them reacting. You could hear them breathing with it. And it was, you know, it was the it's chaos theory and, you know, and actualized it was it was amazing and from then on it just seemed like he was reading a narrative so it was great but uh yeah so john cage was a digression from something no no, no. you uh we were just describing how we were pleased with the noise that Maisie was making and you said right. that john cage gave you that um he gave I'm, me that and a lot of I'm other just, things uh i was particularly interested because i feel like i came I came to the Norton lectures first with Cage, I think. Just, you know, whatever happened that I had my... I had come... I took my girlfriend in high school on a date to see um, New Band, uh-huh. the Harry Parch Ensemble. They right. came to Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I saw a picture of them in the 
in the paper and was like, well, this is cool. So I was being very, you know, very hip and took my high school girlfriend on our, maybe our first date. It's very hip. To, to new band. Yeah. I think I was 15. She wow. Had, she was 16. An older woman. So wow. she had to drive. Uh, I remember being at this concert and it was also my first experience with like a new music audience where it was, you know, some people really digging it. A couple of people with blue hair, us and a bunch of empty seats. Uh-huh. This revelation of a concert. Watching new band. Wow. And so I think quickly after that, I did some enough research to kind of fall down the rabbit hole of finding out, you know, about percussion music and finding out about cage. And then I went, where would I have gone? Where would I have even gone that I would have been able to buy the, cause there's the, there you was, bought it from a store. <laughs> yeah. I just went and bought with the cage things I could buy. Right. And was left. And I, I'm pretty sure I had the cassettes of the Norton lectures. Also, there was like, just, I bought as many of these things cause and just hearing him talk and there's a, were those published as a book also? They were published as a book. Yeah. I feel like I have that book. Right. And just reading it. I think I read the whole thing and I think I just completely missed the point. Uh, I remember like knowing this is a, something's happening here. I don't get it, but something's happening here. Something's happening here. That's cool to know that you were, uh, you were at, at ground zero for that. Is it ground zero for that? The thing about the thing with Cage, of course, is that I mean the other thing that's maybe more significant, you know, is more of the indeterminacy experience is where <clears throat> where what happens with Cage is that you're it's it's all about listening to everything but him, you know. Uh-huh. So and he's about well, kind of pointing kind you of, in that his direction. His voice is pretty. It's distinctive. It's distinctive. I listen to him read the phone. Of course, but he also does. I mean, you know, he'll he we did a ra- we did a series of radio shows also at GBH called the John Cage. The first one was called the John Cage Telephone Event, International Telephone Event, John Cage National Telephone Event, okay. and the second was called the Not John Cage Interna- International Telephone Event, and they were hour long shows, and we had all these phone lines, and people could call in, and we had Cage in the studio. And we had a group of people playing cage pieces in the other studio. And we had people in offices playing over telephones into the telephone on the internal lines of GBH. And then we had these lines, in the, in, which is you, one line, one number you could call in to talk to cage. Another line you could call into to talk about John Cage or anything around John Cage. The third line was to talk about anything but John Cage. <laughs> and <clears throat> the and we had a bunch of others, right? And and the role of the announcer was simply just to read this instructions periodically over and over again. And was that your job? No, that was our host. Okay. And um who really resented this because yeah. So and uh and it was amazing. And then, we, and then we had each one of those in a different fader, and we used his score for cartridge music to decide where, what, where and what level the, each of these faders would be at. So sometimes they'd all be up, and it would just be this cacophony of, of stuff going on. Oh and sometimes they'd all be up, but nobody happened to have called. So you'd just hear these right, open so lines oh, kind oh of no. like hissing away. Wow. And then in the end was beautiful because Cage was sitting there 
There was one person who was reading poetry. He just found some poem that he was reading from, I don't know where he was from, um, very into the phone. Cage was, one of the lines was just John Cage's responses to the caller, but not the caller themselves. So we had those on two different faders. So you'd hear just Cage going, yes. <laughs> oh my, yes. <laughs> and this kind of thing. And there's all these, it was really poetic. And you realized you were listening to as much everything else because you likely, you know, as likely as not, you weren't going to hear John Cage at all, you know. Right. So you would hear everything else. Or you might just hear lines, you know, telephone lines kind of hissing away and you were you working the faders what was your role no i was the producer and so i was okay. telling the engineer at the time how to work the faders who was also really resentful of the whole process because they didn't get to be creative because they just had to put this to three this to seven this to five this to blah 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 they're making so, music they, right but they didn't think of it that way so it was but the but the broadcast was beautiful and it had this and I listened to it now and it has this beautiful shape and weirdness to it and so that still exists somewhere <clears throat> yeah I have it the um, um, so yeah cage was a big cage was a big influence I have to say about so about opening up your ears just about opening up your ears to listen to things and that's what I think that's what I mean to get back to is like questions and questions you ask we're coming back from the string quartet I'm pausing this for one tiny okay. second. Back to the dog. And we're back. So you were asking about... Oh, no, you were just about to tell me about the string quartet. You were saying... Yeah, no, I'm going to back up, though, because... So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, one of the questions... I have, I have this assistant. Okay. And Peter. Peter Atkinson. Peter Atkinson asked really interesting questions, and he... He, I was driving him back. We were recording a string quartet today. I had to drive him back to Tufts in traffic. And he said, I don't know, this is a really weird question. He said, but he want, I said, I wanted to ask you. He said, you know, people want to know your opinion when you're recording. He said, but in what sense are you musical? He, he said, you know, he's, I said, oh, I ask myself that whole thing all the time. Like, what are they asking about? I mean, if they're asking about intonation, if they're asking about performance practice, if they're asking about diction, you know, they're totally barking up the wrong tree. I can tell them about color. I can tell them about what I like. I can talk about balance. I talk about a lot because it's kind of rudimentary. It's loud and soft, right? And present and not present. Um, but he said, but I'm not a musician. He said, I said, so why do people ask me? He said, he said, they ask you because you're a listener. He said, you're a really good listener. And so I think a lot about what the role is of the listener. And, you know, as the listener is sort of a constructor of music, right? You know, so there's at one level, the people like you, like music is for the music maker. Music is for the maker, right? Oh. There's one level that that's great. Sure. You know, it's its own reward. That's probably why you do it, you know? It's, no, it's not why I do it. It's why some people do it. Interesting. Why do you do it? I, I think I realize I do it for, um, I'm always looking for possibility. I'm wondering, um, just at the, at the, at the act of, of making sound, I like to think about what could be a new sound. What could be, I'm always looking for something interesting or how someone is thinking about it. But for me, 
quite honestly, it's all of the personal stuff. It's all the interconnectedness. It's um, I like to make music with other people because I like to collaborate. I like uh-huh. the friendship. So uh-huh. I like to play with my friends and see what we can do together. Right. I like to um, when I do, you know, like the big reason I like to work with when I do um, like the John Luther Adams stuff that I've been doing lately with tons of musicians. It's I like to um, use music as a touch point for uh, inspiration, as a touch point for making making big and crazy music, as a touch point for doing something audacious to inspire somebody else to do something audacious, whether it's music or not music. Mm. I use it. You know, I'm in Boston now teaching, so I I use the music at Boston Conservatory to teach ownership and leadership and thoughtful decision making. Uh huh. So it is not just. I certainly don't make music because I think it sounds pretty. That's the last thing I think about. Uh huh. Wow. I, and that's why I like to play thorny music. You know, I started out as like a rock drummer, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that interesting. Like backbeats are fun. The friendship part was fun, mm-hmm. but the backbeats aren't that complicated. Mm-hmm. So in some ways I realize I like to, the work I'm doing here with my students, you know, where I'm always trying to make them play thornier and more complex music because it forces them to have to stand up to harder decisions and to look at something completely abstract and to come up with a reason for it to make a decision-making tree out of something that is seemingly abstract huh. is really great. So like today I worked on some Zanakis with students and Zanakis is good for giving you unplayable music occasionally. So how are you going to take ownership for the unplayable part mm-hmm. and make a decision? And then the, that that backs you into a corner that you now have to make some other bold decision that might even fly in the face of what you've learned about paper music. How are we going to solve that problem? Or how are you going to solve that problem? Or my students who just think that pretty music is good, so we do some complex, more complex music. How are how are we can how are we working with pitches that we're not familiar with? Mm-hmm. What's on the page to make a decision with? And then how, you know, teaching that stuff. That's all, and that's what I learned from. That's probably what I learned from Cage in some ways. Also, how do you look at something like cartridge music, which is you know squiggles and transparencies and how can you look at this? How can you look at transparencies with amoebas on them mm-hmm. and some numbers mm-hmm. and turn those into art that there is only one taking, taking a sheet of vague amoebas and turning it into that. There will only be one outcome that I must at seven minutes and 24 seconds, turn the knob from three to seven. Right. And that must be connected to line four of the phone or else the whole thing has crumbled. That's great. I live for that process, I think. That's a great answer. <laughs> That's a really good answer. Well, the wine's helping. We're having The <laughs> wine's helping. Yeah, right. <clears throat> no, but that's just that's a straight up good answer. That's very interesting. But I, I want to okay, see this is a problem. You gave me some wine, so I'm going to now talk too much. No, this you might be the better interviewer. <laughs> it turns well, this out. is also funny that you're can, an interviewer, also. So you're we're both posing thoughtful things that the other can talk about. Right. When I, it's been interesting as we talked about earlier. I have, I've begun to dabble in 
producing records and mm-hmm. things of this kind. And well, interestingly, you know, I think you, you worked my first ever professional air quotes, professional session with so percussion is how I met you. That was the first one. Yeah. Wow. I learned see, you, so much from that. Um, you seemed like you knew what you were doing. I was, you know, being very professional. Really. I was trying to be professional, right. but even, but through that process, I think I learned a whole, whole lot. And then coming back and mixing, uh, this Joanna Byer record with you, I learned a lot too, which that, uh, in the Boston globe this week, Macarary wrote about four, about one of the pieces on really? the record. Yeah. Wow. So cool. it, it resonates and <laughs> it was written about this week. Uh, the funny thing in the studio, I realized the, the most important thing you can do on the production side, I'm still kind of an idiot about the engineering side, but when people ask like, who is a good producer? I always say it's just, it can be almost anyone. It has to be someone you trust mm-hmm. as I'm sure maybe even this week or in times you've come into sessions where they've decided they don't trust your opinion mm-hmm. and you can't do anything. And the record couldn't be hard to make. But if they trust you and believe that when you give them comments, it makes them feel positive about their work, I think a lot can happen. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a technical level of production that's just about people who, you know, are really good at picking out intonation problems, who are good score readers, who are... um, you know, who, who happen to know the piece really well, they're somehow qualified to know the piece really well and, and have opinions about that, and, and that's really good. There's another level of, of kind of encouragement that, <clears throat> that works really well. Um, and I think, and, and there's the place that I come from, which is basically being the kind of educated outsider. Uh-huh. So I try to be a stand-in for the audience. It's like, yeah, you say you're doing these dynamics, but it doesn't come off to me as a listener right. like you're doing these dynamics. And and you choose, you know, and you pick and choose your battles because mostly people don't do the dynamics. And, and you try to decide where that might be an actually important thing and where, because you can't carp on that one thing all the time. So, you know, so being sort of the a, a stand-in for the potential listener, a little bit of the great unwashed, you know, I think is a, is is important and to be you know learn how to look away from the score as well as looking at the score because you know you tend to you know you tend to hear what you see right right so i think that that's an important role that that gets lost a lot and gets your brain away and actually be able to step back because you're not in the process i'm not a musician you know i'm not sympathizing you know or empathizing necessarily with what they're doing right but at the same time, you want to try to, you know, get them to trust that you're an outside set of ears. So that's where I come from. And I mean, I, but, you know, I think what's most important is to know what your strengths are and know what your weaknesses are and know what you can say with authority and that people are going to, that you actually know is true rather than just having a thing to say because you're the producer, you know. Right. And I think, and you get that a lot or being sort of the ultimate authority on something that, you know, you just kind of blew in on when they're, you know, been working on this for six months or something like that. Right. So um, I think that's really important. And I think what's also really important, I mean, the most elegant producers I know are, are elegant because of the things they don't say. 
as opposed to I think to that's the art. Yeah. And and a really great I remember working on a, a recording with Chen Yi uh-huh. and the composer and she was sitting there and we're looking at the score and we're looking at it together and she was, you know, she's really nice to work with. And I'm looking at this thing and it's like there are all kinds of things going by that she's not saying anything about that don't look anything like what's in the score. They're missing dynamics. They're missing all kinds of stuff. And, um, and so, you know, I'd say something to her and she'd go, oh, yeah, you listen too hard. You know, you, you think too much, right? This kind of stuff. She goes, she goes, oh, and she just started laughing. She goes, your ears, you know, you hear all these things, but, you know. Anyway. I imagine you were. Then I realized what happened, what was happening was she's like, she was waiting for the next take and the next take. And then finally, after three or four takes of that section, she'd go, she'd point out the two things that actually mattered. Right. That they hadn't gotten, and she was letting a whole lot of stuff go by, you know, in the interest of of the next take and the take after that. And, And she also had a sense of what mattered and what didn't, you know. I remember I have another example that I was doing this recording with John Harbison with his Montale, second book of of the Montale songs with Lorraine Hunt and this chamber group in New York. And, um, and he had told me before the session, he said, you know, we're going to get two takes. He goes <laughs> from Lorraine. And the first one will be about 100%. And the second one will be about 130%. And they won't really have anything to do with each other. <laughs> oh, wow. So he said, you should just know that going in. We did a little better. We got a few retakes about things. Anyway, we're, but it made the editing really interesting. So we did one day of recording. We went back to the hotel. We sat in my room and, and, and picked the takes. So it was the, first, the, first, the end of the first song has eight measures of horn underneath it. And he said, we were listening, and he goes, well, that's, that's, that's the take. That's really the take. And it was a great take. And I said, John, you know, you realize the horn didn't actually play at all, you know, for uh-huh. those measures. And he goes, yeah, that's the take. That's the, you know, that's the one you want to use. And I said, so there's no, it, it's really just not there at all. He goes, you know, I did write the piece. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, right. So, and that was the take, you know. And it was just knowing what his battles were and what, and that's what it is on the recording. And the horn doesn't play for eight measures, right? So that's interesting. You're, um, I bet you, you, I bet work on a lot of sessions where the composer is the producer. Yep. And um, I, I tend to like to work on sessions where the composers not around but it's um it's an interesting uh do you uh do you like do you like having composers around Mm, it just really depends it completely depends on the composer you know they can be completely you know worrying worrying the session into oblivion you know or they can be really really useful um Arthur Berger was really interesting. We did a bunch of Arthur Berger recordings. And Who was Arthur Berger? A composer around here. He died. He was a critic. He was a composer. Um, he died in his 90s. He wrote a lot of music. 
And um, uh, in the end, pretty much everything he wrote was recorded. <laughs> and uh -huh. he was diabetic. He had hearing aids in. He was kind of out of it. He's sitting in these orchestral sessions, and he did not miss a trick. He missed nothing. Right? Uh -huh. And uh, sure. I'm giving Joel more wine. <laughs> Who's giving Joel? There we go. Thank you. What a pro. So he was one of these people, and, and he knew it, he was another one. He knew it was important. He knew what wasn't important. And that's what you really want from, from the composer. So, Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. You have a Don Crockett is another good example. So we did a, a recording with Beam Up of Don Crockett, and Don came, which is not typical, and Don came to, um, and we mixed it together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some music just speaks for itself. His music was completely transformed by his opinions on the mix. The, um, you would not have heard it the same way, and the, and the mixes were not intuitive that way, but he really transformed his piece, and it was, it was really wonderful. It would have been a much worse record without him being involved, because, I mean, you can cut out a lot of that crap. The main thing is that when you work with new music, it's not like working with Beethoven, you know? I mean, people, people are recording Beethoven how many times and how much, you know? And there's a, there's a canon, and there's people know the piece, they've analyzed the piece, books have been written about the piece, everybody's played the piece, and yet you're still discovering the piece, hopefully. Right. And that's great. So you multiply that by, you know, an and a large exponent when you're doing a new music piece because nobody knows what it sounds like. The composer hopefully has an idea, but you can't possibly know really what it sounds like. And, and very likely it hasn't had that many performances, if any. Right. And you're figuring it out. So, you know, so what the balances are really supposed to be is, is you know, is it's really important to have the composer I guess that's there. true, especially with it's something like B-Mop that's not playing the piece for six months. Because there are sometimes I've run into where I'm playing a piece for years and years and it becomes repertoire where I become insanely possessive about it. Right, and right. And then I, I tend to want to have my stamp on things. Um, right. And but that's I've, your version of it. It may or may not be the composer's version. Right, of it, right, right. Yeah. Which I, so is that, fine. that is that is uh, it is interesting to realize that sometimes I'm after my I'm after my version of it. But it's been funny. This is just for me as a neophyte away from the instruments, coming to these thoughts about how the music comes out. Because I'm so used to being spent most of my life behind the drums, right, on stage. So becomes a slightly different thing when you're behind the console and where everyone's role is and how you can help. Right. I know to my musician friends, well, it's also been fun and then we're going to change. We've gotten, we've gone down a rabbit hole. I did not expect to go down, which is fun. Mm -hmm. But uh, here as a musician producing sessions, I do have a knowing what I know and I don't know. There is a way to talk to musicians. I do feel like I have a unique capacity mm to control a session, knowing the inside of the head of the musician on the other side of, whether it's that that person needs to be told they're great the whole time, right? whether that person needs you to say nothing but just watch the clock and make sure they don't bog down, 
or whether it's somebody that really needs to be told maybe their intonation is bad, even when it's not so bad, right? just because they have worked with conductors and like to feel that they're on the edge of their seat to make things. They sparkle when they feel like they're under the gun. Right. It's, um, it's a weirder psychology game sometimes for me. It's, it's completely invaluable. I mean, as always, it's completely important, critical to know that. I completely don't know that. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, there's some people I connect with that way and I sort of get it, but I blunder into it. But, but to be able to understand that and know what that person needs is really, that's really great. That's a real gift. And, and it's a gift to the recording too. And it is, of course, very topical for Passover because it's the four sons. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally the four sons, the wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and the son that doesn't know what to ask. <laughs> and you talk to each one of them differently, trying to give them the same message, right? Right just how it is so um so these days what is what is your life you know like these days are you mostly um what are you mostly working on these days are you mostly recording music or are you because you on any given day could either be recording music or uh listening to ambient sounds in the desert right or i when i met you you were always back from a good old romp with some throat singers yeah i mean right now i'm doing a lot of recording um i am thinking about a lot more and 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 i've done a lot more in terms of listening education than i did before um is so badly said i can't believe it the um <laughs> i need to think about that before i open my mouth just one second yeah because it's a i'm sort of in a funny place actually with all this stuff you know i feel like this doesn't answer your question i record a lot of new music I record a lot of early music. I record a little bit of classical music. Um, I've been really fortunate to work with the Aga Khan Trust for Culture and be able to record a whole lot of Central Asian classic and nomad music. Um, and and I love that because you have you truly have to approach it, approach every one of those instruments and every one of those pieces fresh because you have no idea what their role actually is right so you have to ask you know and um so that's great and that's really rewarding same reason i like doing all this field recording and 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 things but um you know i'm at this point where i spend a lot of time wondering about how to use this this glut of technology and this glut of easy access to recordings and sounds and everything, you know, to cut through the noise and promote actual listening. It's sort of, it feels like a little bit of a paradox, but I think that there, I'm convinced that there's a way to do that because I have to be convinced that there's a way to do that because this technology isn't going away anytime soon. Right, but it is making a whole lot more noise in the world. So we have to. I'm trying to find a way to almost subversively turn it in on itself. Um, so to use the technology to sensitize people to listening, and then 
and encourage them to get away from the technology and just listen. What was that project that you did last year you were telling me about where you went? Didn't you lead a week-long listening project? Yeah, there was a couple, it was a couple of years ago. We did this thing in the Southwest. Um, I worked with an anthropologist who was studying how Native American people through Central America and the U.S., um, use sound and how they talk about sound and how they listen to sound and how they name places for sound names and what that that actually means. Um, so in the process of doing that, we um, got invited to go to a, a ranch in south, uh, in northeastern New Mexico. It's a prairie preservation project to teach a bunch of kids in the, I think the fourth poorest county in the country, um, nature recording. It was mostly an enrichment thing because they don't have much in the way of enrichment in any way. So we did that for, for the first year. We had them out there for three or four days, um, did a lot of talking about sound, did a lot of talking. We had naturalists. We had, um, I talked about, sound propagation and sound recording and all this kind of business. And then eventually gave them these Zoom recorders and and had them go out and record things. And um and then in the in the kind of winding up at the end of it we had the kids evaluate the session and they were talking about what they liked, what they didn't like. And this one kid who was particularly smart said, I really liked it. It was really cool to listen to nature through a microphone. <laughs> And I was just, it just struck me. I was like, okay, that's, that's exactly what's wrong with this session, right? Because nature doesn't come through microphones, not amplified. It's not edited. If you really want to listen to nature, what you have to be is patient and attentive. And the technology really takes all that work away. So the next year, what we did was the opposite. I started out and I gave them the, the Zoom recorders in the first hour because they all know how to push buttons and said, okay, go out, record a bunch of stuff and this kind of thing. But the objective is by the end of this, I want you to bring me five minutes of sound that's unmolested by you or any other human. All I want is five minutes of pure natural sound in a really quiet place. And it turns out, that's extraordinarily difficult to do. Um, people don't know when they're making noise. People don't know when the other people are making noise. The staff had more trouble with it than the kids did because right. the staff were always feeling like they needed to talk about everything. And the and it was great because, so they would bring me these chunks of audio and they'd say, okay, here's my five minutes. And I said, okay, let's listen to it together. What do you hear? Oh, yeah, there, there's Jason moving around in his butt. There's, you know, Alyssa scratching with her pencil. There's, you know, blah, blah. And then people talking and the people talking far away. And then, so we'd, so they'd go out again the next day and they'd try to do that. And then you'd say, okay, well, this is a little bit better, but, you know, you moved around here and this kind of stuff. So it was teaching stillness. It was teaching, I, obje- I didn't really care what they brought me to listen to. Uh-huh. But, but the fact that they could sit really quietly for a long time in order to get five minutes of uninterrupted, uninterrupted sound. And then once they got it, they were really proud. And I would put it in the, we would listen to it, and then we'd put it in this spectral analyzer, oh, cool. basically a denoising program. Uh-huh. And I'd say, well, you know, 
let's look at this. What do you see in here? And they go, oh yeah, that's the river. And it looks like the river. Oh, those are the birds and they look like the birds. And this is the crickets, you know, and they'd say, and they'd notice things. And so then they would go back and on the last day they had to go out and record five minutes of sound without using any technology. So they would just have to come back, no paper, no pencil, no recording device. They would just have to come back and tell you about it. Tell you what happened. Nice. Yeah. And describe, you know, what they heard. And, and that was really cool. So anyway, I have a, there's a project in India that involves grown-ups and rich people. <laughs> um, uh, in the Western Ghats that I'm going to go to in June, and they want me to do something similar. And that might actually be useful. That's really great. I mean, that sounds like my son's a Cub Scout. I, we could do, that could be a week of Cub Scout activities. It could be really cool Cub Scout activities. The thing I wanted to get that I haven't did, I never got in there. Well, I mean, I got a couple of them was I wanted expert listeners. So people that listen for a living and it could be a naturalist, could be an ornithologist, right. could be a hunter, you know, because they have out there, they have um, some of the Native Americans are still doing bow hunting. And uh-huh. you have to listen really hard <laughs> and be really quiet. So that kind of thing. Do you know about uh, World Listening Day? No. There is uh, in mid-July, there's a thing called World Listening Day. Huh. Which is a, I'm not sure if it's quite worldwide yet. Or if it's widespread, but it's um, people endeavoring to find reasons for people to go listen. Wow! So it 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 endeavors to do some projects in this in this um, of what you're speaking of. I have just learned about it. I gave a talk in Baltimore in January. There's this thing called the New Music Gathering, hmm. where people get together and talk about new music issues. And I gave my talk about large scale things. And this woman uh, in Chicago, uh, she, she hipped me to it. So I, I'm still, I'm overdue for a, I'm going to lunch the- date. Yeah. Because it seems like there are all these people who are endeavoring to promote listening. And it seems like it's, it's the kind of day where activities happen world worldwide to hopefully do things like raise awareness of what's your neighborhood sound like. Right. Let's go take a sound walk of your neighborhood and figure out what we're listening to in our neighborhood. Yeah. So I'm, I am still, uh, it's on my list of things to learn more about right now because that does seem exciting as somebody who, even I am a horrible technology has ruined me. The other day, I forget where I had to walk in Boston that I ended up going and buying headphones. I lost my headphones, but the thought, I felt like a smoker or something. The thought of a half hour walk without something in my ears was wow. like freaking me out. It's, it's, yeah. it's horrible. That's yeah, a problem. I think it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I agree. And it's hard to know, but you know, it's hard to listen. It's hard to, I mean, part of the problems, I think, is we all have to, there's so much noise and there's so much sound that you have to filter. 
and you just end up filtering, being so good at filtering that you lose the ability to to be open to what's there because it's hard. It's painful. I mean, you can't do it. You know, you're like David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth. And if you ever see that scene where he's in front of all the TVs and he's just like, get out of my mind, all of you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like that. And, and I mean, that's why I couldn't live in New York. It's too much noise. It's all, yeah, it was too I'd much noise all the time. The middle of Manhattan to the, the middle of New Hampshire. That was intense. Right. I guess. So that what was, was that like? Well, one, I realized that my ears rang more than I expected. And just, it was like, it was one of those things that was so dark and so quiet. Mm -hmm. It was like hard to sleep for a week. I remember getting there and thinking, oh, I'll never sleep again. As I listened to my ears ring and just, you know, stillness can be unsettling. So it took a while. I'm doing, I'm okay now. But right. That, that first week, I just remember laying in my bed in New Hampshire. So, what would happen after you adjusted? Did you get Did you get addicted to that? <laughs> did you go, did I never you like did. It? I was comfortable. I was glad I was never like freaked out by the quiet. I'm okay. I still though like I like a little bit of noise. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm in Chicago, I live in a relatively quiet neighborhood, but it's not without noise. Right. That that pleases me. But you like that, yeah. Yeah, with, with without a noise floor, I freak out a little bit. You wouldn't like Wind River Ranch. <laughs> well, you might like Wind River Ranch. I mean, I love Wind River Ranch because, I mean, this is the thing I was saying, you know, when I go to this, this is the place where I taught the, mm -hmm. I actually went there originally to start, well, we went there because of the Native American project, and then I ended up going back because I wanted to make a documentary on the place, and I started recording a lot of sound there. And I realized it was, really hard because it was one of the quietest places I'd ever been. It was vast. And you'd hear, you know, for instance, the grass is rustling. But on a recording, that just doesn't really sound like very much unless you see, you know, the distance. You have to correlate what you see right. and what you hear. And we all know with media that what you see and what you hear is made up, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but if you're actually there, and you hear this tiny little intimate sound that's almost too far for you to see, you know, right. that means a different thing completely. And um, so, uh, and that was true. I mean, these two von Mongolia and, you know, those kind of trips, that was, those were amazing that way. But, um, um, but I realized it's going out there. So I would go out there and I'd do my interviews. And then from sun, from late afternoon on Friday, until first thing in the morning on Monday, it was just me and 5,000 acres of quiet and 90 bison and who are pretty quiet. Um, and it was amazing. And I realized how much noise was in my head. Never, I mean, ringing your ears for sure. And then, but then the noise in my head, you know, I'd have the last, you know, the last record that I just mastered going over and over in my head. And it was just like, God, get out of there, you know? And it took a long time. And I remember w walking down this, um, this road, this path in the, in the ranch. And I heard something like, because there were no flyovers. One of the reasons the place was so quiet was there right. was no flyovers. And, and I remember hearing something that sounded like a squadron of jet planes or something like that. And 
flying time, it's not that far from the Air Force Academy. It's probably, I don't know, a couple minutes flying time from the Air Force Academy, I'm guessing. And um, yeah, actually less than that. Um, if they're at speed and I'm sitting there like, oh God, they're doing an exercise. And I look and I couldn't see them. No planes. Of course, you wouldn't see them where they are. But then what flew over my head was about this flock of about seven birds that were just gliding. Uh -huh. And that was the sound of them gliding was deafening in that landscape. It was so cool. I got, I spent some time this year in um, Montana. Mm. There's a, a new art center that's just stunning called Tippet Rise, which is an hour and a half north of Billings. Mm -hmm. These people are basically trying, have you been to uh, Storm King? Mm -hmm. Basically trying to make a Storm King in the middle of Montana. Great. But there was similarly, it's, I think it's 11,000 acres. and That's a little bigger than Storm King. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think they're going to use all of it, mm -hmm. but it, uh, and there's nothing on, there's nothing. The town is like population 50 or something. And then there's these 11,000 acres. And my son and I were out there all by ourselves one day, just us and some art and some cows. Uh -huh. It was incredible. But out there, I actually find great peace in that kind of tranquility. Mm -hmm. It's the quiet doesn't freak me out. Actually, what freaks me out, like we lived in Concord, New Hampshire. So there was like streets and stuff. Just no one doing anything. That's different. Yeah, right. Yeah. When I felt like you were in a ghost town or something. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I remember moving from Manhattan and I thought I got there like six o'clock on a Sunday when I moved in and I thought the town had been deserted because there was me and two other cars on the street. Right. So that was... That was the population density, maybe, is what I have a problem with. It looked a little bit like a Twilight Zone. So. Yeah, that's that's what was freaking me out. Montana was just nothing but wonderful. Right. Maisie, you all done in there? Sorry. She's um, being all freaky. So this is very random. I don't know how you can possibly. I, I think know. it's great. I like I like mm -hmm. arranging, arranging conversation. I can tell you about the coolest sound check I ever did. You, sure. This was in Kyrgyzstan. Of course it was. And we were recording people, who, many of whom had never been recorded before. Some people had been recorded before. Didn't have any idea who this was. This is this old guy. And he was, um, he was the composer, he was the performer, and he was the instrument maker. And he came in and he played a, uh, a plucked instrument. And, and he sang. It was an epic um, Maisie, sorry. Hey, whatever. Okay, we'll leave that alone. Um, anyway, he, um, so he came in and I put my microphones around and he came back and we said, you know, and I did a little sound check and I, and I, but I wanted him to hear what the sound was because of course I didn't know what he wanted to really sound like. Right. So, he put these headphones on, and he hadn't really heard things on headphones, so I think. But he adapted to that pretty well. And he listened to it, and he goes, "No, that's not it." And he said, "You know, let's try something else." So, so I came, went in, I readjusted my microphones in some other way, and 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 he goes, "No, that's not it." And then he 
you just nothing was right nothing worked out and i said well finally he said i said well, what kind of how would you like to sound and he goes i'd like the sound that my teacher's teacher had <laughs> and i said okay and i was thinking about that and given his age there's no way his teacher's teacher was actually recorded right so this was something that he'd More heard about, right? right? Maybe, or maybe heard, but it was in his distant memory. And so I said, okay, this isn't about microphones. And he was, this is all through the translator. He goes, no, it's not about the microphones. It's not about the technic, he said. And then he he's kind of lit up and he said, oh, I know what the problem is. So he went inside, he took his instrument, took the strings off, took out a file, started sawing away on the bridge. <laughs> and put it back together and he goes okay he said now you can put your microphones i said so you know where should i put my microphones he goes oh you'll figure it out <laughs> so so i did and then he said oh yeah that's the sound yeah just it was this interaction between memory mm -hmm. and instrument making and listening and you know interacting with technology it was like the whole package all there together and it's really one of my favorite cuts on this whole Kyrgyz CD you know it just it sounds it sounds right to me too you know uh -huh. and I never heard his teacher's teacher so that's I guess I guess not to ask a uh, potentially opening question I should have asked to start this whole thing but now towards mm. the end of this whole thing yeah but uh i mean i guess how do you you you're a great guy to have a dinner with because of all the ranging stories you have because your career has as you've but my favorite part of this talk so far was when you blew past the like when you're out with the tuvans in mongolia but you know and then you continued another story because you have um worked at GBH, you've advocated for new music all around the world, you've ended up traveling the world. How do you, like, how do you make, what is your decision tree? What do you think about when you get up in the morning and how have you done this? Have you thought about building this career of curiosity or has it all just happened and you're just open to the whole thing? Or, because not everybody, not everybody has these stories, Joel. Right. Not everybody has had this fun Kyrgyzstani sound check. Right. Hung out in with the two. No, I mean, I think it's a microphone tourist, I guess is how I describe myself. It's like, I have these microphones. I more or less know how to use them more or less. And the, and, and you, when you have those, and if you have a certain kind of curiosity, then, you know, people open up to you. And they open up musically, they open up, you know, culturally and that kind of stuff, personally, whatever they, you know, I think, I think it's a combination of luck. I mean, a lot of it is Ted Levin. Oh yeah, right. We share Ted Levin. Right. Um, but it started and, you know, the, the ethnographic stuff started because I was working at GBH. We had a live performance program and this violinist from here, Beth Cohen, who's like the United Nations of music and, most people don't know about. Nobody knows about Beth Cohen, actually. But she was doing a performance with Robert Schwartz, this pianist, and they were doing the two Bartok sonatas. And in between, 
she said, well, before the second sonata, which features the, you know, the famous Bartok pits, right? And she goes, you want to hear where the Bartok pits comes from? <laughs> and she, and it's pretty specific, you know, as that he, it was something he, because he was a collector. Uh-huh. And it's from a, one little valley, Gimesh Valley in the Carpathian Mountains, where they have an instrument that's a, called a uta gardon, a struck cello, basically, where that's a plucked, it's got three strings, a completely flat bridge, and it's got three D strings on it, basically. Okay. And they whack it with a stick on one side and pluck it on the other. So it's a percussion instrument, pretty much. And that's where he got his, you know, got the pits, the Bartok pits from. And so she played this. She had transcribed from one of Bartok's records the solo from this thing, and she taught her pianist how to play the gardon, right? And I was like, that's, and I got pretty captivated with it. It sounded amazing. And she said, well, if you really want to hear it, you should come over to my house tomorrow night because I've got the, all these Hungarians there, Transylvanians actually, okay. who are playing this stuff. And and I was blown away by it. I was blown away by the, I never. I didn't know anything like that. It was not like any of the, you know, folk music or whatever I'd heard of. And certainly nothing like classical music. Here are these guys who were, who are playing like one great big instrument, all from memory, all from like big cultural memory, you know, with their eyes closed. Everything, all the parts of it are broken, you know. People aren't in tune, people aren't together, and yet it's virtuosic and it's amazing, right? Uh-huh. And I was completely blown away and they said, oh yeah, this is Transylvanian music. So, um, So I, and this is before the Romanian revolution happened. So Transylvania was like completely locked up. And so I said, I really want to record this stuff. This is incredible. Americans haven't heard this. It reminds you of lots of things. Reminds you of klezmer music. Reminds you of, you know, other kinds of Eastern European music. But it's really its own thing. So in the I went there, it was 1990. And in the... Um, uh, Suddenly, in, in January of 1990, there was this, the Ceausescus were assassinated. The Romanian Revolution happened. This place had been locked up since the Second World War, and really since the time of Bartok in some ways, um, was wide open, and you could go there, and it was like a, like, it was like a museum of, of music the way Bartok and Kodai heard it. And um, so it was luck. To answer your question, you know, it's completely luck of running into Beth Cohen. And because of that record, I ran into Ted Levin. And then suddenly I was like, okay, you can do this stuff, you know. And that was an amazing gift. But it's a sort of curiosity. You also have to be willing to um, not be very practical. <laughs> You know, so so the, so we, I had done a couple of these things, and I'd gone to Tuva with Ted, and I was running a studio in Roslindale, which was doing rather well. It was fine. We'd poured our blood, sweat, and tears into it for a while, and finally it was up and going. You know, it had its issues. It had its problems like all studios, but people were coming to it. It was making a lot of money, and Ted called up, and he said, do you want to go to Mongolia for five weeks in this National Geographic expedition? And 
you know, you instantly do the math in your head, right? Right. So I'm like, well, you you know, you don't just walk away from a studio for five weeks that has bills to pay and is just up and coming. And I was like, right. and the fact that I didn't think about that decision at all, you know, told me something. So I was like, of course. So I was totally into going, you know, and you, you make very little money doing that. And the studio loses money hand over fist because <laughs> you're just not there. Right. But um, um, so, you know, I don't know. You have to not care or have to care that much about making money. And you have to, um, you have to be, You have to be open to whatever comes and actually be into whatever comes because whatever you go out to to try to collect and whatever you think you're going for, it's probably not that. You right. know. So you go with you have to go with an idea of something that you need to do there and why you're going there and you know, and get some funding together to do it. But once you're out there you realize you don't know anything about where you are. And if you're not gonna miss the real message, then you have to be, you have to be open to whatever's whatever's coming. So it's like the John Cage thing. Right. In a way, you know, you think you're there for one thing, but you're really there for something else. And that's a lot more important because if you were there for the thing that you already knew that you were going to go there for, why did you have to go? <laughs> right. Right. So, um, so it's, I've been incredibly, you know, I've just been really fortunate that way. And I think it's a, I think I was also fortunate to be there at, at a time, to be in a lot of places, Transylvania, Mongolia, Tuva, you know, Central Asia, when access and being, you know, collecting music was still, collecting things that hadn't been recorded before was still really uh, valued. And now with the internet, I think it's really, really changed because everybody's documenting everything. Right. On some level. Case in point, me sitting in your studio today. Yeah, this is an interview. I mean, you know, new people are born all the time, so that's another story. But, you know, but big traditions of indigenous music not being really, you know, documented is, is that's going away pretty quick, as are traditions of indigenous music. Well, I was going to say, I have a friend of mine is still racing around Cambodia trying to, like, trying to get something down so that there's a tradition there right because they did a pretty good job of trying to remove it right and then so so that's that's great work you know i mean i have a friend this other guy that i met david harrison who's an amazing linguist and his he studies endangered languages and i got to travel with him to also in tuva and as well as in mongolia kind of doc doing audio for him but also documenting what it is that he does and what his thoughts were about it and as he points out in his book called Why Languages Die, or When Languages Die, mm -hmm. which is a really amazing book. And there's also a movie on him now called The Linguists. Oh, okay. And um, which I presume is, you know, is available on YouTube probably, right? <laughs> um, but it's a very accurate portrayal of what he does. But as he points out that of all the things that are going extinct, and they're disappearing from the world, you know, and he plants, animals, 
languages are going faster than anything. Right. So languages are disappearing and with languages and in languages are encoded a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge and this kind of thing that goes away when the language goes away. Right. So, um, so, you know, music is, music is certainly goes along with that. So. Well, now your, uh, curiosity involves recording silence <laughs> and recording nature. Yeah. It's funny. Um, speaking about what you were just talking about the there's a percussionist steve schick who is in the world of new music and yeah is a great man yeah he a few years back um set out he walked all of california he walked the coast the coast from san diego to san francisco no kidding and he thought he was setting out to like listen to landscapes and things like that and he um as he tells it, he, one, he, so every day he recorded 433 to record these landscapes and quickly realized that just turning on your microphone in a diner isn't inherently that it could be not so interesting mm-hmm. because of it's a diner. We get it. You know, it's, it's there, but He was like, I expected to just have these transformative recordings. They were not so transformative, but he realized on the walk that he had to marry his girlfriend. So he marched from San Diego to San Francisco and proposed to his wife. That's great. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty great. It's a perfect story. Bunch of bad recordings, but he got a wife out of it. So that's pretty good. I realized also coming back from what was one particular, one particular trip to Tuva, and, you know, I think of it as a recording guy, you know, as, as a recording engineer, because that's what they hire me to do. But I think it was thinking of it as a journalist, which is really, uh-huh. in a way, what I'm not, you know. But <clears throat> I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to contextualize all this stuff. And I still want to. You know, I'm still actually going to do that, And even though this tape is very, very old, a lot of it. But I start. I thought a lot about okay, so what's the story we're going to tell? You know? mm-hmm. So if you tell the story that actually happened, you, first of all, nobody would be interested in that. And second of all, you would have to tell the story of a lot of personal angst and a lot of insecurities and a lot of uncomfortableness and a lot of, you know, things that make you wonder why in the world would you want to go on one of these expeditions? You right. Know? Because, you know, you're unfamiliar, you're insecure all the time. You're annoyed, you're, in, you know, in very close quarters with other people all the time who, you know, and then inevitably you start fighting with them. And there are a lot of things that are really just messy and annoying about it. So when you come out and you tell the story as a quote journalist, what you get is a, is a big lie. Uh-huh. You get a big idealized, you know, abstraction or extraction of some facts of the situation that may or may not be particularly prominent, you know. So then you begin to question, okay, so, all right, we're not really going to document something. What we're really going to do is to tell a story. Totally. And well, and as an academic, that was... One of, I think the, the biggest thing I learned in my doctorate 
was that even the most academic person is just a storyteller. They're just a storyteller, right? They're, you know, it's the whole thing of like, why do we know about Webern and Schoenberg and Stravinsky and not somebody else? It's because they were good for the story. They were in the right places and the story connects. It's a good narrative. Their music is great, but it is also convenient for the, the canonical narrative to talk about these guys and not the other guy and then to connect them to the other guy because we can only really have, there's only so many room for so many characters in the story. Mm. Very good so, point. so it's all, it's all a story and it's all how we want to tell the story. You ever read, there's a book by Elie Wiesel called A Beggar in Jerusalem? I haven't. I know, I, I feel like my wife has. She may have that. Anyway, it starts out with a story that's attributed to, it's a story about these great classic, you know, rabbis. And they talk and they go all the way back and they said, the Baal Shem Tov, the, finer, the founder of Hasidism, master of the good name. He was like, he's the guy, right? And he went, and he, on the, on Yom Kippur, on the holiest day, he would go to intercede for the people and he would leave and he would go to a certain place and a certain mountain. He would make a fire and he would say a certain prayer and he knew what wood to gather for the fire and he knew what prayer to say and he would talk to God. And he knew what to say to God and God would forgive the people. And then he died. And his disciple, whose name I should remember, but I don't, um, would go and he would also go to the mountain, but he didn't know what wood to use. So he would use whatever, and he would say, Master of the universe, here I am, you know, and I've, I know the mountain, and I know the place to make the fire, and I know how to make the fire, but I don't know what wood to use, and I don't know exactly what words to say. But God would forgive the people. And then the next generation, it goes on and on, you know, well, they didn't exactly know the place to go, they totally didn't know the words to say, you know. And they knew how to make a fire, and they knew how to make it someplace, and God would forgive the people. And then finally it goes down the one, this, the, the, the youngest one goes, well, here I am, master of the universe. I don't know what words to say. I don't know what wood to gather. I don't know how to make the fire. I don't know where to make the fire, but I know the story. <laughs> <laughs> and God forgave the people because God likes stories. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. So, anyway, that's a weird way to end this thing. What time is it? I think it's time to eat dinner. What time is it? 7.30. Yeah, that's when I, I got to go back and record. That's oh. my problem. So, I have to be there at 8. So. Oh, no. Yeah, to reset up again. Well, thanks for eating and drinking with me. Thank you for, yeah. So, your pleasure to talk to you. <laughs>